It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. After the podcast, check out everything ChristianQuestions.com has to offer. Also see our weekly video series releases at ChristianQuestions.com slash YouTube. Now, here's your hosts, Rick and Jonathan. Arthur Schopenhauer once said, Every man takes the limits of their own field of vision for the limits of the world. I'm Rick, and this is not your typical Christian commentary as we look at Bible-related topics from a different perspective. I'm Jonathan. This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. Folks, talk to us anytime with your feedback or questions at ChristianQuestions.com and all our social media channels. Dig deeper after this episode by downloading our comprehensive Secure Rewind show notes. It's a visual and contextual map for everything we cover. That's on our website and in our weekly newsletter. Plus, check out our YouTube channel. We're putting out cool content for all age groups with new videos every week. So, Jonathan, how are you? What's happening? What's going on? What's up? What's new? (laughs) Hey, Rick. uh, Our question for the podcast is, does God really love humanity? Part one. And our theme text is found in Luke chapter 15, verse 4. What man among you? If he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. Okay, so does God really love humanity? And again, part one. One of the most famous scriptures in the Bible says that God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son for it. For many, the obvious follow-up response is, great, then why is the world more messed up now than ever? In truth, God does love humanity, and his love is expressed in a profound and eternal plan. While understanding this plan may be challenging, it certainly is not impossible. On many occasions, Jesus showed us the magnitude of God's love and plan, but he showed us it in story form. We're going to look at a series of parables, a series of stories that Jesus used in Luke chapters 15 and 16 to trace the power and grandeur of God's plan for all of us. So folks, coming up in today's podcast, where, so where in God's, in, in God, sorry, sorry again, let me try that again. Coming up in today's podcast, so where in, in today's media-saturated, violence-driven, all-about-me world, where is God in all of that? The answer is active in solving all of the above. So how is he doing that? We're going to cover a parable of the lost sheep in the first few segments. However, what we will discuss is probably not the interpretation that you're used to. Next, we'll feature the really short parable of a lost coin. This parable will actually help us progress, or process rather, the massive disconnects that our present society is so totally stuck in. These stories give us a rare glimpse of the depth of God's comprehensive plan for all. So, Rick, by carefully following the symbols in the stories, we can clearly reveal their meaning. Yeah, and, and really that's what it comes down to, following the symbols in the stories. And so, so, Jonathan, we said this is a two-part uh, podcast because we want to go through these stories very meticulously in, in, in some ways to get the real meanings. So there's four stories we're going to cover in these two podcasts. What are the four stories, and just quickly, where are they found? Well, the lost sheep is found in Luke chapter 15, verses 3 through 7. The lost coin is found in Luke 15, 8 through 10. The prodigal son is found in Luke 15, 11 through 32. 
And the unjust steward is found in Luke 16, 1 through 15. Okay, we're again, just going to look at the first two of these parables today. But to begin, we've got to ask the question, who is Jesus specifically speaking to in not only these first two parables, but the third one as well? To get that audience in place, we have to look at Luke chapter 15, verses 1 to 3. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, saying... All right. So, Jonathan, there's a lot of different people in this, in this audience. There are, Rick. There's tax collectors, there's sinners, there's Pharisees, and there's scribes. Right. And he does have his disciples with him, but it's interesting that he's addressing those four specific groups of people. And you have, so this is a, explaining who the context is focused on. Is that right? And this is really important because uh, we, we want to understand that the tax collectors and sinners were kind of on one side because the Pharisees and scribes wouldn't associate with them. So they're naturally on the other side. Mm. So he's got these, these two groups and it says the scribes and Pharisees began to grumble saying, well, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Jesus looks and says, okay, I have a story to tell you. So now, we also know, I mentioned, we also know his disciples were there, and that's shown in the introduction to the fourth parable. So we're jumping way ahead, but just to establish that they were there in this general context, let's jump ahead to Luke 16, 1. Now he was also saying to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and this manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. So it's interesting. Now he's also saying to his disciples. So what we see is that his disciples are there, and now he's addressing them. That'll be in part two. So the first three parables had a common audience. So what's the common lesson of those three parables, two of which we're going to deal with today? Well, Rick, someone or something's lost, and then found later, and then rejoiced over. Okay, so there is a commonality between these parables. So you got to ask, okay, it's the same basic thing. Is Jesus saying the same thing three different times? No, no, we don't think so. We're going to suggest that there are three different parts of the same lesson. Okay, all of that being said, let's put the first parable on the table. Luke chapter 15, verses 4 through 7. What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So when you hear the parable, the story of the lost sheep, there is a really easy interpretation that seems to just present itself. And that interpretation seems to be, and, and this is kind of the way everybody seems to say, oh, okay, I know what this parable means. These are individual human beings and Jesus goes to find each and every stray human being. So, Jonathan, let's pause there, because that seems like a really simple explanation for the parable, right? It, it does, Rick. But uh, in thinking about it, the problem is 
Jesus' audience and all of humanity, we all need repentance. So, and, and so you're saying that's a problem because in the parable, in the last verse, it says, after this one lost sheep has been found, it says in the same way there'll be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous who need no repentance. So who are they if all humanity has sinned in Adam? And that's the point. There's nobody that would qualify as the 99 righteous who need no repentance. Jesus wouldn't be saying that and saying, well, the Pharisees are righteous because they, they pretend to, to follow the law. He wouldn't be saying that the sinners and tax collectors are the righteous. He's really saying they're all lost. So you've got to say, well, wait. If they're all lost, then who are the righteous ones? And at that point, Jonathan, there was nobody. You got it. So you, we have a dilemma with the way Jesus presents this parable as being as simple as we'd like it to be. It would be great if it was that simple, but it's not. There's much, And it's much deeper. It's much bigger. It's much more profound, as we will see. And Rick, it's verified in Isaiah 53, verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have all turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So that's kind of interesting. All we like sheep have gone astray. And it, you're, you're taking that symbol of sheep, and sheep are used for a lot of different things in Scripture in terms of symbols, but this is a very specific thing saying we're all stray sheep. And can you, are you, we looking at it and saying, okay, so are we suggesting that all of us are what Jesus went to find in that one lost sheep? Hang on to that thought, and we're going to expand it. You know, that's an, that's an Old Testament representation of what's happened to humanity. What about a New Testament represent, representation of that? Well, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That, that confirms what Isaiah is saying. So, again, when we look at this parable in the simplicity of the way we might be tempted to interpret it, you say, wow, it's really easy. But wait, nobody is righteous. We're all sinners. So you have an issue that you have to deal with if you want to get to the real meaning of this particular story. And so, Jonathan, that presents a challenge, and it presents an opportunity as well. The challenge of what does it mean and the opportunity of Whoa, there's probably something profound here, and I think that's where we're going. <laughs> <laughs> so, folks, listen. Sometimes scriptures show us the obvious. Good. But we also need to look beyond it to see what's intended. If the one lost sheep doesn't represent any single sinner who's gone astray, what does it represent? You know what's great about subscribing to Christian Questions on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spotify, whatever your favorite podcast channel is. You receive a push notification reminder every time a new episode is published. Plus, it's a good thing to binge listen to several episodes in a row, really easy playlist features, and you can auto-download new episodes to your phone every week. So subscribe today. Now let's pick up the pace for tonight's topic. So the context of Luke 14, 15, and 16 show us an extended experience Jesus was having with several Pharisees as well as crowds of sinners. This would suggest that he is now addressing all of them together and he may be teaching them the foundational principle of original sin and how it affects us all. 
So we want to think about that, Jonathan, the idea that Jesus is addressing not just the Pharisees, but all of them together to show them a much bigger picture. And we remember the attitudes of the scribes and Pharisees. They were so far above the sinners that they they felt the sinners didn't count for anything, that they were it and that was that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and 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 so Jesus is not only bringing them down a peg, but he's reminding the the, the sinners and the tax collectors, look, you're all in the same boat. I think that's what that's what we're going to get to here. Let's go to a soundbite from So What About God from Father Robert Barron. And you know, he he's mentioning something about people in their in their religiousness and he makes an interesting interesting observation about people. Let's listen to this. Go back over the long centuries of human history. Most people have believed in God. In some ways, that belief in itself isn't all that controversial. But the follow-up question is, well, so what? Many people today are tempted by a form of deism. Deism is the view that says, well, God is a supreme being who maybe long ago created the universe, gave it its laws, wound it up like a clock, and then let it go. So we speak of a secular space, you know, the space where God doesn't really exist. God is long ago and far away. That's a deist view. And in some ways, if you hold to deism, you say, yeah, so what? I believe in God, but it's just a vague sort of conviction. But that isn't the biblical view. You know, and I think that's important because a lot of times when we look at trying to interpret things in Scripture, we sort of tend to leave God way out in the distance. And what God is showing us through Jesus in this story is his profound care for, for the human race. And, and again, as we develop it, I think it's, you're going to see how it, it really does make a statement of absolute intention on the part of God and on the part of Jesus. So if, this is, if it's true that you know, this is a bigger picture, how do we explain the opening of this parable? So let's go back to the opening verse, Luke 15, verse 4. What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? So what we're suggesting here, Jonathan, is that Jesus is not finding the one lost sinner when he goes to find that one sheep. What we're suggesting is Jesus is going to find the whole world of mankind as sinners represented in the one lost sheep. Lost humanity. Yes. Lost humanity, one lost sheep. That's what we're looking at here. So when we look at the beginning of this parable, can that possibly fit? Well, let, let's, let's reason through this. Jesus, when, you know, when Jesus came to earth, he didn't start out on earth, right? No, he didn't. He came from the heavenlies. That's right. So he comes from the vast harmony of the vast heavens to find the one lost sheep, humanity. And it's interesting that it says in the parable, he leaves the 99 in the open pasture. What, what, is that, what does that actually mean? Well, Rick, it means a, a lonesome expanse or space. Okay. The open pasture this is, is a lonesome, expansive space. And, and, and that, so it means uh, you know, a place where there's really nothing. But when you look up into the sky, what does it look like? The atmosphere, the yeah, heavens above this, us. This expansive space beyond the clouds. It's just this huge space. And just, I think it's a sort of a, a symbolism to say that's where 
the other sheep were left. So when we look at that, what, what are we saying about the other sheep then? Well, who was with him in heaven? Well, angels. A- angels that were working in harmony with God. Right. Following orders, doing their duties, working perfectly the way God intended the angels to work. So you have this vast community of God's heavenly creation that we incidentally know very little about. You're right. Okay, You're we, right. You know, very little. And what we're suggesting is the parable is showing Jesus leaving all of that to rescue this stray sheep, this stray creation of God. So why would we say that? Well, again, let's look at Scripture to help verify this whole thing. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 8 through 9. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. He said, Go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. So this is Isaiah responding to the call from God, Who will I send? And Isaiah is saying, Here am I, send me. And we do realize that Jesus, that was a prophecy of Jesus answering the call. Oh, it was because uh, speak to them, but their eyes won't see. Right, speak right. to them, they're, they're, they won't understand with their ears. I mean, that's that describes Jesus to the T, right? So the point is, there was a need to find the lost sheep, and Jesus essentially in heaven says, I will go, send me. And so we have this sense of Jesus leaving those expanses of heaven, and, and, and again, they, it looks like an empty, expansive place to find that one lost sheep, the world of mankind. Hebrews 10, verses 5 and 7, helps us to kind of see you know, what's behind Jesus coming. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book, which it is written of me to do your will, O God. So you have Jesus, again, prophetically being spoken of in Hebrews 10 as saying, I came to do the will of God. I came to find the lost race of humanity to rescue them, to bring them back. And you say, okay, well, is that what the will of God was? Well, let's look again. Romans chapter 5, verses 12, and then we'll jump to verse 15. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. But the free gift is not like the transgression, for if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to the many. So you have this scripture that gives us a sense that by one man, everybody's plunged into sin and death. A perfect man, Adam, fell into sin. And as a result, everyone born to Adam inherits that. That's right. By one man, Jesus... by The perfect man, Jesus takes and cancels out that sin. He finds the lost race by coming and and doing the act of sacrificing himself. That's justice. A man for a man. Perfect, perfect uh, price for the sinner. So so when we look at the question, the big question, does God really love humanity? And, and, you know, and people have all kinds of different perspectives on that. You know, well, you know, if God loved us, he would tell us, you know, and you've heard the famous sayings of how many millions of people, well, yeah, if God is there, let him come tell me right now, then I'll believe him. 
And the point is, God's love for humanity is much bigger than such a tiny little uh, immature request. Good it, point. It is bigger because it's eternal. It is expansive. It is so complete that it's got everybody involved in it. And that's why God doesn't waste his time talking to each and every little person who says, well, if God is real, let him come talk to me. Because his plan is already working without us and Jonathan often even in spite of us. <laughs> Good point. Okay. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> so that's how his plan is working. So, And we see that the grace of God abounds to many because Jesus comes to find the stray sheep. So let's go a little further in the parable. He leaves the expanses of heaven to go find the lost humanity, okay? So how does Jesus rescue this lost sheep? Luke chapter 15, verse 5 of the parable. When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. Okay, he puts it on his shoulders, and you can see the picture, all of those pictures of the shepherd carrying that, that sheep on his shoulders and bringing it back home. Well, you carry heavy burdens. How do you carry them? On your back and shoulders, right? You do. Okay. Yeah. Now let's take a look at now now folks, just just sit back and let this sink in. Isaiah chapter fifty three, verses four to six. Think about carrying a heavy burden, and this is a prophecy of Jesus' sacrifice. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourgings we were healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. So I think it's a beautiful picture that surely our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried, just like in that parable where this man goes and rescues this lost sheep and puts it on his shoulders, Jesus shouldered the sin of every human being. The weight of all of that is what he carried. So now, think about this. How do you carry a cross? Well, he carried it on his shoulder. That's how you carry a cross. Matthew sixteen twenty four. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Okay, so the idea of taking up your cross means literally carrying your cross to the place of crucifixion. To death. Right. That's a scary thought. It's a scary picture, but it gives a sense of using, carrying that heavy weight, that heavy burden upon your shoulders just where this man in this parable who's represented by Jesus carries the weight of the world of mankind. It's a beautiful picture. So, so Jonathan, what, what's the result? Well, it is a rejoicing and a continuing carrying the redeemed world on his shoulders. His sacrifice did the job. And we see that and if we look forward in prophecy to see God's love for humanity. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. 
the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So you have this wonderful prophecy of the end result having rescued the lost sheep of humanity. But the beautiful thing is that once the rescue happens, it says the government will rest on his shoulders. Just the way he carried the cross on his shoulders, just the way he bears our griefs and carries the sorrows on his shoulders. So you can see that the, the picture language used in this particular parable of, of, of bringing that lost sheep back on his shoulders is not only what Jesus did in the sacrificing part, but is what he continues to do in the reconciliation part of the whole story. And Rick, I love how this ended. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish us. There's that rejoicing yeah. to make it happen. There's the attitude and the desire. Absolutely, absolutely. So, so when we look at this, and we're looking at this part of the parable, what, how, how are we seeing God's love for humanity? Well, Rick, it's expressed in the attention he gives to the seemingly insignificant human creation by sending Jesus to not only retrieve it, but to rejoice in that process. See, Jesus actually did rejoice in the process of sacrifice. He really did, because he said, my nourishment is to do the will of God of him who sent me. So, you know, you see this sense of this, this higher purpose that Jesus carried through no matter what the circumstances. So this parable takes on a much more profound meaning when we see it in a much bigger picture. So while the simpler meaning for this is really encouraging, the deeper meaning is powerfully includes everyone. Jesus rescues the lost human race carrying it on his shoulders, who rejoices with him in this victory. Rick and Jonathan have been friends for decades and co-workers on this weekly podcast for just about that same length of time. Since they know each other so well, sometimes Jonathan has to rein Rick in because, let's face it, Rick can start an in-depth analysis at a moment's notice with all those facts stored in his head. So thank you, Jonathan, for keeping Rick in check when you add your comments to help us understand on a non-professor level. And don't shy away to ask Rick and Jonathan a question. They love answering all of them at ChristianQuestions.com and all our social media channels. What's next, gentlemen? So let's remember that this is a story that's meant to illustrate the specific point of God's eternal and universal plan having a special place for the lowly human creation. Why this point for this parable? Well, I think that Jesus is telling his entire audience that they're all lost and that he came to find not only them, but the entire human race. And, and, and Jonathan, I think we can't underestimate the power of the meaning of this parable. Jesus came to find the entire human race. If that doesn't show God's love, I don't know what does. That is it. That it how else can you show love than offering your only begotten son because he loved his creation so much? Yeah, yeah and, and it really is. It's an inspiring, inspiring story. And, and you know, one side point, Jonathan, I meant to mention earlier, um, there's another parable of lost sheep in Matthew chapter 18, verses 12 to 14. It's got a little bit difference in detail, and it actually has a very different meaning. And we're not going to go into that particular parable. As a matter of fact, we've got that laid out for you in Seeker Rewind, the, the, uh, the bonus material. So, you know, if you go to Seeker Rewind, the show notes, and you, you get a sense of things. In the bonus material at the end, we're going to show you that other parable and why the two are so completely different. 
same types of symbols, but a very, very different meaning. Okay, so let's continue, Jonathan, with this parable, Luke 15, verse 6. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep, which was lost. Okay, so in the story, Jesus returns home. Let's take a look at um, at uh, how, how that happens. Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Uh, the soundbite. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't want yeah. you to forget that. Yeah. That's important. Well, yeah, geez, you know, I'm, I'm all excited and just moving along and just, okay, I'll slow down. <laughs> Thank you. See, you got to reel me in, like, <laughs> just like it said. <laughs> See, the reason you got to reel me in is it's not the stuff is stored in my head. It's all leaking out, and I have to say it before <laughs> I forget it. <laughs> anyway, Jonathan, this soundbite, thanks for bringing that back. It's it's about the book of Job. It's from the Bible Project. These guys do a really, really wonderful job of, of explaining things very, very clearly. But, you know, a lot of us are in a place where we feel like we want to challenge God because we don't. it doesn't make sense to us. Job was in a similar place. Let's listen. He's also on an emotional roller coaster. At some moments, he's very confident that God is still wise and just. Yeah, in other moments, he's doubting God's goodness. He even comes to accuse God of being reckless, unfair, and corrupt. So by the end of the dialogue, Job demands that God come and explain himself in person. And God does so. He comes in the form of a great storm cloud. Now, God doesn't give Job a direct answer. He doesn't tell Job about the conversation with the Satan. Yeah, he does something very different. He takes Job on a virtual tour of the universe. He shows Job how grand the world is. And he asks him if he's even capable of running it or understanding it just for a day. So it's interesting because in the challenge to God, you know, uh, God doesn't give the, give a direct answer. He just asks Job a lot of questions. And in asking those questions, he puts Job in his place. And Job, we'll, we'll see, realizes things. We need to be like that. We need to be able to just listen to the, to the explanations that God gives, even though they may not be as simple as we'd like, and get the value from them. And that's what we're finding in this particular parable. It actually shows us not God's love for a single sinner, but it's showing us God's love for all of the human creation as represented in that one lost sheep. So again, just reread Jonathan uh, Luke chapter 15, verse 6. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. So, as I was saying before, forgot the soundbite. <laughs> in the story, Jesus returns home. Well, what happens in Jesus' earthly ministry, John fourteen twenty eight, You heard that I said to you, I go away and will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. So I am going to the Father. He's saying, this is where I'm going. His return home was always on his mind and always in his purpose. We know that because when he prayed for his followers in John 17, he mentions that. John 17, 3 to 5. This is eternal life, that you may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So he is recognizing that he needs, that he needs to and is ready to go home once his sacrifice is complete. 
And Rick, I just wanted to mention some of my favorite scriptures uh, that people can look up. Proverbs 8, 22 to 30, show you the experience between God and Jesus and them working together in heaven uh, during the creation work. Uh, it's just inspirational. It is. And it, and it shows us, again, going back to his back to his friends and his neighbors and saying, I have found the lost world. I have taken the world of humanity and brought them back. So, you know, and let's talk about the rejoicing among his, quote, friends, because that's what it says in the parable. He rejoices amongst his friends. Well, let's think about the rejoicing aspect. First, those in heaven rejoiced at the beginning of Jesus' journey to go rescue the lost uh, race of humanity. Luke chapter 2, verses 13 to 14. Everybody's familiar with these verses. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. So there's this multitude of heavenly hosts praising God. If that's not rejoicing, I don't know what it is. And it was to shepherds, by the way. Right, right. To the humble <laughs> shepherds. Yeah, yeah, got the sheep thing going everywhere you look. Uh, so, you know, you've got this rejoicing at the very beginning. The heavenly rejoicing at the accomplishment of Jesus' mission is astounding. We're going to go to Revelation chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And, you know, you, again, you see the power and the magnitude of the rejoicing. So in the parable, it says he calls together his friends and his neighbors. But, you know, Revelation shows you the magnitude of that rejoicing. It wasn't like a few high fives and everybody's happy. You know, this is a big, big thing. And it was in beautiful harmony and with perfect pitch. Yeah. <laughs> Those angels singing for joy uh, about the Savior of humanity. Yeah. And again, worthy is the Lamb. And you've got, it says myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands. It's telling you the number is just incomprehensible. And we're going to come back to that uh, in, in, in a little bit. So you've got this rejoicing in heaven and the parable. So you can see that the parable makes a lot of sense. When you look at it in this bigger picture perspective. So now Jesus wraps it up. Luke 15, verse 7. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And again, where do we find anybody on this earth who needs no repentance? The faithful angels in heaven serving God. Right. Nothing here. Everything's no, there. <laughs> you got it. So, you know, what we want to do is say, okay, so let's look at this in, in a bigger picture because this shows us how God really loves humanity. We can easily see how this heavenly rejoicing comes to pass as we look at the results of Jesus' work. And we're going to do that by going back in time and looking at a prophecy in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. And we'll just go for 31 and 32 to start. Okay. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. So, you know, you've got this beginning says there's going to be a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And it's not going to be like the law covenant. It's going to be bigger. It's going to be better. It's going to be more comprehensive than that. 
And so then he goes on and he explains it even further. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart, and I will write it. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. So you have a perfect picture of what the rescue that Jesus performs by finding that lost sheep, the world of mankind, ends up looking like. There's a lot of forgiveness there, brother. There's a lot of forgiveness, and there is a wonderful harmony, and there's a wonderful realization that God is all and in all. And it's all through the work of Jesus. That's a beautiful thing. It is. And, and, it, and it shows us that, again, does God really love humanity? Yes. Why don't you see it now? Because we're not at the point where it's obvious yet. Not yet. And that's the thing about an eternal plan. You can wait and wait and wait and say, well, it's taking too long. Well, eternity is a whole lot longer. And when you look at 100 years or 200 or 300 years or 1,000 years, that's a drop in the bucket when you consider what God's plan has got in store for all of humanity. So when we look at God's love for humanity and wrapping up this particular parable, Jonathan, what do we see? Well, Rick, it is expressed in the many prophecies that show how the future will be, what it'll be all about, and bringing humanity into harmony with his new covenant that comes through Israel. All humanity coming into harmony through the new covenant that comes through the nation of Israel. You know, and Jonathan, so one of the things we need to realize is Israel plays a major, 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 and if I might add, a major role in God's plan. Well, they were his chosen people. They may have made mistakes uh, along the way, but he loves them. And he said, I'll cast you off and I'll take you back. That's right. So, you know, we, we want to look at that and we want to rejoice with that. So th- this really helps us to see God's love for humanity in a very big and very powerful way. Grabbing hold of the prophetic direction of this parable helps us see the big picture results of Jesus' work. The parable of the lost sheep is about saving humanity. What is the parable of the lost coin about? We're constantly looking to our listeners for your feedback on our weekly episode discussions. Let us know if you'd like to hear more topics like this one or new topical suggestions. Keep your comments coming at ChristianQuestions.com and our Facebook page. We're also talking about topics in Reddit, and you should check us out helping answer questions on Quora. That's Q-U-O-R-A.com. We're engaging in combo everywhere. Thanks for listening, and get ready for us to take a deeper dive right now. As we shift into this next story, we want to pay particular attention to the foundation that Jesus put in place with the first story. The theme is saving that which is lost, and the fact that what was lost, the one sheep, the human race, was a part of the greater harmony and overall plan of God. So, so Jonathan, I think that the key point to remember at this moment is the... the story of sin and death and how long and hard and difficult it's been. It's all worked into this greater plan of God's harmony. And you're saying that the parable we just went over is not exactly like this one. This one builds off of that one, but it's a different 
understanding, a different message? Yeah, and, and this parable is really short. It's just like two or three verses. Uh, and so we're going to see what's the similarity and what's the difference. But first, let's go back to the book of Job. Remember, Job uh, you know, was, was challenging God. You know, and God comes and, 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 and basically he's going to say, okay, Job, you know, let's have a conversation and let's see who should be challenging who. And uh, so let's go back. This is from the book of Job from the, the, the Bible Project. He shows Job how much detail there is in the world, things that we might see every day but really don't understand at all. But God does. He knows it all intimately. He pays attention to the beauty and operations of the universe in ways that we haven't even imagined and in places that we will never see. Then to conclude, God shows Job two wondrous beasts and brags about how great they are. Yeah, they are dangerous. I mean, they would kill you without even thinking about it. And God says they're not evil. They're actually a part of his good world. And then that's it. That's God's whole defense. You know, and it's interesting. God, when we say to God, well, you know, you should tell me because then I'll believe. God does not stoop down to, to, and I called it immaturity, and, and again, I'll say it again, to such immaturity. He doesn't stoop down to the, the, the childish response of, well, if you would just show me, then I'll believe you. Rather, he says, my plan is big, it's intricate, and it's already written down. So if you want to see me, first of all, walk outside and look around. Look at the incredible complexity of nature. Look and up. And harmony. Yes. Wow, the harmony is unbelievable. Look up at the vastness of the universe. Look around at the trees and the grass and, and, and the plants and all of those things. Look down at the ground and look into the water and understand that all of this did not happen by accident. All of this did not happen by some odd chance, but in fact is all on purpose. That's how he answers us. So this parable shows us, it's like a bonus look into the heart of God that says he loves us. So now let's take a look at the second parable. Remember, the first parable was the reaching out and saving the lost sheep, which is representative of the, of the uh, world of mankind. Luke fifteen eight to 10 is the parable of the lost coin. Or what woman, if she has 10 silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of angels of God over one sinner who repents. Okay, the woman has coins, ten coins, loses one, cleans the place out, finds it, everybody's happy. First of all, why one of ten coins? What, what, what is it? Now, we're only focusing on, on, on verse 8, you know, the first verse. Woman, she has 10 coins, loses one. Uh, she lights a lamp, sweeps the house, and searches carefully until she finds it. That's all we're going to focus on this segment. Why, Jonathan, why one of 10 coins? Commentator McGee said the coin was probably part of the row of coins which formed a headpiece, signifying her married state. To lose a part of it was like losing a stone out of one's wedding ring. You know, and if you've ever seen a woman who lost the stone out of her wedding ring. Oh, heartbreaking. Yeah, and they're frantic. Yeah, I've got to find it. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a tragedy. 
It is. Because it's such a powerful symbol. Well, in those days, you had this these uh, row of coins that formed a headpiece, and there were ten, and the ten symbolized that complete set, and, and it signified that marriage. So perhaps the lesson here builds off of the last story. The tenth coin represented a completion of that predetermined set, just like there were a hundred sheep in that predetermined flock, and one was missing. Just as humanity was the one lost sheep among God's created beings, here the lost coin is also showing humanity as the one lost piece in all of God's hierarchy. So we have the lost sheep as the, uh, the lost being, and this is now showing us the lost piece of all of God's hierarchy. And, and Rick, uh, I have a question. What about Satan and the fallen angels? They're kind of a lost piece in God's <laughs> hierarchy. I know it's not talking about that in this parable, but that's important to, to understand. It is. It is absolutely important. And Satan is a lost piece of God's hierarchy. And the fallen angels are lost pieces of God's hierarchy. So how do you, so how do you fit that in? And the answer is really simple, Jonathan. You don't. That's not what the parable is about. This is not a comprehensive story of all of the aspects of God's plan. Remember, Jesus is speaking to a mixed audience. You've got scribes and Pharisees and tax collectors and sinners and then his disciples, and they're all lost. He's focusing on their being lost and his role in finding them. He's not focusing on anything beyond that. So it's a very detailed story about a very specific part of God's plan. But you're right, Satan is another lost piece to be told in another story at another time. <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> so, so we're going to suggest that this woman represents the reconciliation process that's executed through the glorified church or the glorified followers of Christ after they're in heaven with him that brings humanity into the perfect harmony and completion of God's design and hierarchy. So, and Rick, that sounds really complicated. <laughs> yeah. um, the woman represents this reconciliation. Help me with this. Yeah, and, and, and you're right. This this is not an, an easy thing. But think about this: as the parable of the lost sheep was about the people. Okay. Okay. All of the people represented in that one sheep. The parable of the lost coin is about the process. All of God's things are looking exactly the way they're supposed to be. They're all harmonious. All the pieces are where they belong. Humanity is the last piece to get put into the harmonious picture. So we're looking at this as the process of putting, finding that last piece that Jesus instigates the finding of. I don't know if, okay. that, I don't Thank know if you. that helps, but help. anyway. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So you can see that reconciliation is a big part of God's plan. So you've got the people and you have the process. Lost sheep, people, lost coin, process. I think that's the way we look at these two parables to come together and tell us the whole, the whole story that, that Jesus is trying to tell this small group of people. Uh, another Bible commentary from uh, F.L. Godet. What does he say? 
With what minute pains are the efforts of this woman described? And what a charming interior is the picture of her persevering search. She lights her lamp, for in the east the apartment has no other light than that which is admitted by the door. She removes every article of furniture and sweeps the most dusty corners. So it's giving you a vivid picture of being absolutely thorough in, in, in removing all the dirt, everything that's in the way, to get that harmony in place. And, and I think that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying that he came to take, get, get the people back in place, but he also came to put God's plan into perfect harmony, get all the pieces working together. So what the woman does, she lights her lamp so she can see. Well, let's look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Now, this is interesting, because you know a lot of times, uh, a lot of Christians look at this verse, and they t- look, think about the day of visitation, and think, oh, that's a bad day. But actually, it's a good day, isn't it? Because the evildoers are going to say, oh... He was one of the lords, and that's why he acted this way and did this and said that. Okay, and I it, get it. <laughs> right, and they're going to say, thank God for that. They, that may glorify yeah. God, the day of visitation, the day of judgment. See, Joel, Jesus told us that we're the light of the world. So, you know, to be a part of the process that right now, see, right now is not the time of reconciliation for the world, but we still can model the reconciliation for the world. That's what Jesus did. When Jesus came the first time 2,000 years ago, it wasn't time to actually pull the world out of sin, but he modeled how to pull the world out of sin. He modeled what it would look like when the world was out of sin by, by the healing and the teaching. We model what Jesus modeled. We don't do the healing, but we model through the teaching and the example of lifting up higher. We need to be lights in the world. So this woman sweeps and searches the entire house. The restoration to perfect harmony is the task at hand. She's not stopping until she finds that lost coin because it makes everything complete and harmonious. Acts chapter 3, verses 19 to 21. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. Okay, so you've got this powerful prophecy in the New Testament that talks about uh, Jesus coming back and these times of refreshing and the restoration of all things that is so, so important and is really a pivot point in Scripture. And Rick, I like the part where this started off, therefore repent. Well, John the Baptist, that was his message to natural Israel. Repent, prepare for Messiah uh, so that you can actually copy him and follow him and join him. Uh, And this is being presented to, to the world. Do the same thing that John the Baptist told the Israelites to do. And, you know, and again, in this particular parable, you know, the question is, well, why? Well, in the time of restoration, of reconciliation, the world is being brought back into harmony so that they as individuals can have life, but also so all the pieces of God's creation will be in harmony. So when we ask the question, does God really love humanity? He loves it enough to picture it 
as one of the ten pieces in this parable that all must fit together, otherwise it's not a complete picture. So humanity is not an afterthought. It's not an, oops, it fell down, I have to get it, and I've got a scramble thought. It is a pre-planned execution uh, that says they, the human race, are just as important to me as the angels in heaven that are in harmony with me and have been for eons and eons of time. That's how much God loves humanity. And, and this parable is showing us the process has to be in place just like the people. And I think it's a beautiful story. It's simple, but when we see it in the bigger picture, what he's telling the Pharisees and the scribes and the tax collectors and the sinners, you're all broken. But I'm here, and because I'm here, you're not going to stay broken. And each of you is just as broken as the other. Remember at the beginning the Pharisees were grumbling because oh, yeah. Jesus ate with sinners? Well, he's saying, look, you're no better. You're no better than they are, and I am here to change all of that. Now, to, to look at this reconciliation process, just, just very, very quickly, just, just touch on it. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 9. The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. Okay, talks about the day of judgment to be punished. You're saying, aha, you're talking about peace and harmony, and that doesn't sound like peace and harmony. But So let's, let's understand those words, Jonathan, a little bit. Well, judgment means a separating, a trial, a selection. Okay, so that you're talking about the day of separating, the day of trial, the day when everything is going to be worked out. That's what the day of judgment is. It's not a stamp of approval or disapproval. It's a time of trial, a time of judgment. And what about the idea of being, quote, punished? To lop or prune as trees and wings, to curb, check, or restrain. And that's interesting. You're holding back. You're, you're showing them how to be. It's like when you take a child who's, who's misbehaved, and then you teach them how to properly act. And you may have to go through it a couple of times, but then the child eventually learns manners, and they learn to say please, and they learn to say thank you, and learn to say I'm sorry, and all of those things. And that reminded me, Rick, of Revelation 2, 26 and 27, how Jesus is going to rule the nations with a rod of iron. They need to be curbed and checked so that they can learn and then move on from there. Right, right. Without the learning process, you can't have them moving on. So the people, the lost sheep of the world, have to go through that process of reconciliation so that the picture of God's harmonious creation pictured by those 10 different pieces are all exactly in harmony. And again, Jonathan, in this parable, I know you're probably going to ask me, well, what about Satan and his fallen angels? They're not <laughs> a part of the picture because that is the evil that will be destroyed that helped all to understand that righteousness prevails, that God is God, period, end of statement. So we've got this big picture that shows us the people, the lost sheep, and the process in this parable of the lost coin. So God's love for humanity, how is it shown here? Well, Rick, it's expressed in his grand design, which requires restoration of that which was lost. Uh, and what was lost? Humanity's perfect obedience to God's perfect governing hand. Okay, the, the restoration the, uh, of that which was lost. And we have to be in in the process, in the right place. So Jesus is not only speaking of salvation for all, he's speaking about it in two different prophetic 
dimensions. These parables seem so similar. What was the point Jesus was making with these two examples? If we asked Rick, Jonathan, and the CQ contribution team to answer our topical questions in five minutes or less, rather than in several chapters over 90 minutes, they'd probably get a little stressed out. Plus, they love painting that bigger picture by looking at several real-world media perspectives, historical facts, and scripture. That's why some answers may come quickly. But we love taking a look at the bigger questions that aren't so easy. Both stories show the big picture of salvation for the whole world. The lost sheep shows humanity as a whole will be recovered. The lost coin shows that the system under which humanity was meant to dwell, the system of being under God, is not Satan and would also be recovered. And again, Jonathan, you can't recover something unless it was lost. You got it. So when you see Adam sinning, you see the human race falling away and needing to be recovered. And when you see Adam sinning, you also see the process of answering directly to God being lost because Satan got in the way. So those are the two things that were lost. And these two parables are showing those are the two things that are going to be recovered. So, you know, when we see that all put in place, one last time, let's go back to the, uh, the Bible project, the book of Job, and these guys are talking about, you know, Job had challenged God, and God really did put him in his place by saying, were you there when I did this? Do you understand that? Do you understand this? And it's really remarkable what God reveals to him. Incidentally, God revealed many things to Job at that point that were scientifically impossible to know. That's right, he did, and now science proves yeah, right. They're right. Right. <laughs> right. Written long ago. Just saying. You know, is did was it a lucky guess? No, it's all God's plan. Anyway, back to Job and his learning humility from all of this experience. From Job's point of view, it looks like God is not just. But God's perspective is infinitely bigger. He's dynamically interacting with a whole universe of complexity when he makes decisions. And this is what God calls his wisdom. So Job asking God to defend himself is actually kind of absurd. He couldn't comprehend this kind of complexity even if he wanted to. So where does this leave us? Well, it leaves Job in a place of humility. He never learned why he suffered. And yet he's able to live in peace and in the fear of the Lord. You know, and that's such an interesting point. Job is never given an answer to why he suffered. And he's content He's content because he understands that God is God. Afterwards, God blesses him. God doesn't tell him ahead of time that, oh, you did such a good job, now I'm going to bless you. Job learns contentment and humility, and then afterward God allows him to be blessed beyond what he had been blessed before. It's a wonderful story, Jonathan, of putting our heart and soul in the hands of God and letting him take us and, 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 and develop us. And everything Job had lost, his family, um, his friends, uh, through that experience, he will see again because they're going to be recovered. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. All, all of that comes back in the resurrection. You're right. So now let, let's go back and finish the parable of the lost coin. Luke 15, verses 9 and 10. When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost in the same way I tell you. There is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. 
Okay, so we've already looked at the joy of recovery in heaven. And, you know, it's kind of a repetition here, the same kind of thing. Now let's look at the joy of what recovering, governing of the world will, under God will, look, will be like. See, because there's one thing to have joy in heaven, but what about the joy on the earth once God's presence is clear, defined, and obeyed? What, a, what does that look like? Well, let's take a look. Let's kind of break it down into some pieces, okay? Israel and Jerusalem will be the source of earthly blessing. You know, we mentioned Israel before, and Jonathan, Israel is such a mighty, mighty tool in the hand of God. We have to have such respect for their place uh, because he uses them mightily, has in the past, and will in the future in a big way. Remember now, mountains oftentimes in Scripture represent governments. So when you hear mountains in this next verse, think about mountains as governments. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 3. And many people will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Okay, let us come to the mountains of the Lord, to the house of Jacob. Let's go to the seat of government of God. It's just a wonderful picture. And Rick, the context of this, if you think about it, the miracle of resurrection is going around uh, along everywhere. Friends, family members are back to life. People are excited. Friends, you know, even their enemies (laughs) will be resurrected. Uh, But the focus will be, wow, this is amazing. How do I get right with the Lord? How can I thank him? How can I be in tune with the Lord now? Look at this beautiful harmony that he's bringing to, to fruition. So, you know, and, and, you, and you paint that picture of the, the people within the system. And again, the people, lost sheep. All humanity is that lost sheep. The system, lost coin. That's what we're saying. It's the harmony of this system matching all of the governing systems of God's grand creation. And this system is very specific. The government of God comes through the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. It just tells you very specifically, yeah, there's the capital of the world. That's, that's where it's going to be. How do we know? Well, scriptures are pretty, pretty specific. So the lost coin being put in its rightful place means the people of earth will go to their rightful place to worship. Again, the lost coin is about the system. It's about the process, the reconciliation. Zechariah chapter 8, verses 20 to 23. Thus says the Lord of hosts, It will yet be that people will come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one will go to another, saying, Let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I will also go. So many peoples and mighty nations will come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. You know, it's no, it's no accident that you have such mention of very specific physical things prophetically looking at the future. It shows us what the, what the world is actually going to look like. Go ahead, let's finish verse 23. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In these days ten men from all the nations will grasp the garment of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. So you get this sense that there's a strength that comes to Israel first and then to the rest of the world. 
That's why we say this new covenant is made through Israel. That's what the scripture told us, and we're seeing how it is expanded through Israel. Now, where do the true faithful Christians come in? They are the heavenly representatives of God overseeing and making all of this happen. So you've got this whole working system in place, and that's what reconciliation is. So the work of reconciliation is accomplished under the mighty hand of God. This was Jesus' message. The parable of the lost sheep, the people, all the people of the earth had to be rescued. That's that lost sheep. The parable of the lost coin, the system that was lost of being directly related to God had to be found through all the dirt and mess, through light of truth, and, and, and put back in its proper place. And here we have that message shown to us in another Old Testament prophecy, Micah chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. And it will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills, and the people will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us about his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For from Zion will go forth the law, even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem." It's amazing to me how many different Old Testament prophecies there are that describe the same thing in slightly different ways. It's showing us the process of God's governing of the world, how it's going to work. That coin, that lost coin, is going to be exactly where it belongs. And the result of that is in, verses, in verse 3 of Micah chapter 4. And he will judge between many peoples and render decisions for mighty distant nations. They will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they train for war. So, you know, this sense of all of the world is sick and tired of the idea of war. The idea, well, there are some people that want to fight, but, you know, I'm not talking about them. You know, the, the idea that Enough, enough, can't we just get along? Enough cruelty. Right, enough cruelty, enough loss of life, enough collateral damage, enough of all of this. Isn't there a better way? Yes, there is. And the lost coin is showing us that the system that God has in place will match the perfect system of the heavenlies, and it's all about peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Final prophecy before we close, Jonathan, Isaiah chapter 42 verses 1 and then verses 3 and 4. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. And Jonathan, you were talking to me about this verse before we uh, got oh, started. I love this verse. <laughs> how merciful Jesus will be for humanity and how patient he will be for their recovery uh, uh, in the world. Uh, it's not you're in, you're out. It's give them time, let them see others, let them understand God's way, and then they will raise up and say, I'm in. This is, this is what perfect life should be. You know, and, and it gives us a sense, again, of the two pieces that Jesus is explaining to this mixed audience in these two parables. It's showing you the result of the people, the people being saved and brought back into harmony with God, and the masses of people that will be brought back into harmony, and it's showing you how the system works. So the lost sheep, 
the human race, the lost coin, the system of being in, 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 in harmony with God and that reconciliation process, both show us the same end result from a different perspective. And, and you know, when we look at these parables, Jonathan, you think, wow, Jesus is pretty smart. <laughs> you know, he has a simple way of showing us profound and deep things if we're willing to look into the scriptures and follow the symbolism that he lays out for us. So let's finish up with Isaiah chapter 42. We didn't read verse 4 yet. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. You know, and, the, and, and you know, waiting expectantly, you think about that. That's a great, great picture. It's not like waiting with moaning and groaning and trepidation saying, oh no, what's this going to bring? It's like, can't wait to have this all in place. Bring it on. <laughs> can't wait for the coin to be completely found and restored because we, the lost sheep, are ready for it. That's kind of what we're saying with these two parables. Now remember, does God really love humanity? This is part one of a two-part series. In the second part, we're going to go through the next two parables in this series of parables, and God explains it through Jesus' parables in a very different way, but he gives a system here. So what is our, our final God's love for humanity lesson? Well, Rick, it's expressed in the comprehensive detail of his powerful plan that he has given to us so we can know what's coming. And that really is such a big part of this whole thing, is much of the Bible is written so we can know and understand what is coming. God does have a plan. And by sending Jesus and by giving Jesus the ability to be able to teach in stories, he laid out for us 2,000 years after he came what we can be looking for as we are now in these last times before the time of trouble and the resurrection process. The lost sheep, the world of mankind, Jesus comes and carries on his shoulders. The lost coin is restored and the harmony of all of God's creations are in perfect alignment one with another so that we can see that God is all and in all. Remember, two-part series, the second part is coming up in a few weeks. So, does God really love humanity? Of course he does. Think about it. Folks, listen, we really do want to hear from you. Give us your feedback or send us your questions on this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Also, a big part of spreading the word about our program is subscribing to Christian Questions on iTunes and Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or Stitcher, whatever your favorite podcast channel is. Please rate us, review us. We would greatly, greatly appreciate it. Coming up next week, preach the gospel. So what does that really mean? <laughs> Talk to you next week.